Radio Diaries from PRX's Radiotopia is a podcast featuring first-person diaries, sound portraits, and hidden chapters of history. Their newest series, Hunker Down Diaries, tells stories of people in unexpected circumstances due to the pandemic, like hunkering down in a car, quarantining after the first date, and spending the lockdown in a pizzeria. Subscribe to the Radio Diaries podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it's Lou. Just a warning that today's episode contains subject matter that might be sensitive for some listeners. When Sosten and Nzigiri were separated by an ocean, they sang to each other over the phone. Sosten was in America. Nzigiri, his wife, was home in the Democratic Republic of Congo with their six children. The phone was all they had to stay connected. So Sten was in Minnesota for what was supposed to be a short work trip when Inzagere called him. Don't come home, she said. It's not safe. So Sten's life was in danger because of his work helping child soldiers and their victims rejoin the community. So Sten and Inzagere's separation dragged on for three years before Inzagiri and the children were able to join Sosten in America. But through it all, they waited, they called, and they sang. Until finally, they were reunited again. From CBC, this is Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection. I'm Lou. Today's episode... What can you hear? What can you hear? Strain your ears. Are they crying? Is there whimpering? Are they blowing their nose? Learn to listen. Did they sound angry? Did they sound anxious? Were they nervous? Were they sad? Get out of your own head. Pay attention.
ready or not. I use a line from uh, Shakespeare, my mind hath a thousand tongues and each one tells a different tale. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in our head and half the time we don't even realize all the voices going on. So we're trying to learn to be aware of those voices and then to try to get a handle on quieting them. My name is Alan Ross. I'm the executive director of Samaritan Suicide Prevention Center in New York City is part of the world's oldest and largest suicide prevention network. We run the city's 24-hour suicide prevention hotline with all unpaid volunteers. Hotline training is very intensive. Uh, it's like Survivor on television. One participant said it was like Marine boot camp of the mind. One of the things we do immediately is have everybody sit in the training room and close their eyes and go, what can you hear? And first, you know, they'll hear the air conditioner or they'll hear a refrigerator in the other room, cars out on the street. But the more they're quiet and the more we focus, we can hear a light bulb vibrating. We can hear chairs moving as people breathe, and in fact, we can start to hear our own breathing. If you can focus on your breathing, empty your mind, you're more able to receive signals, receive outside communication. before they have the nerve to actually say hello. They don't know how to begin. They don't know how to begin. You have to have the patience to not panic and the patience to give that person a chance to collect themselves so that they can talk to you. Sometimes I will literally count to 10 before I say anything so that I can put my head in the place to concentrate on that caller. One one thousand two one thousand three one thousand silence being comfortable with silence so much of it is your own ingrained fears concerns confusion beliefs you know well if i don't fill in what they're saying i'm not listening one of the things that we preach at samaritans is that silence is meant to be shared not filled Music is one of the tools we use to get people to approach listening uh, outside of their normal uh, manner. Eric Satie 
has a very famous uh, series of pieces of music called the Gymnopédie, and it's just simple piano with space. Listen to how silence shapes what we're hearing. It shapes the melody, it shapes the experience. If we have someone who's being attentive and responsive and present, we appreciate sharing silence. This must be difficult for you. Please take your time. Do you hear the cricket? Do you hear the bird? How many voices can you distinguish? So you're just asking questions to get the ear and the mind to search. Did they sound angry? Did they sound anxious? Were they nervous? Were they sad? A gentleman called the hotline and he said, my plants died. Now I'm the kind of person that wants to say to the man, did you water the plants? If you water the plants, they won't die. But instead the volunteer says to them, says to the man, let's talk about the plants. How big, how small, where are they, what kind? who usually takes care of the plants. And he said, my wife, but she died a week ago. Now clearly that gentleman did not call because he wanted to talk about plants. But when you try to solve somebody's problem, oftentimes you may actually be addressing the wrong thing. They're not all suicidal. They're just really lonely people. There are people, elderly people being one of them, who have absolutely no one to say anything to them during the day. Some people have called us every day since we've opened. And that was in 1977. We had this one caller, and every day he called about quarter to five. Well, this young man was physically disabled and cognitively disabled, and it gave the mother a little respite so she could get dinner ready. He would talk about what he did that day. It helped the mother, and it helped him. You start to realize that most of the time you don't really have to say anything at all. What can you say that will stop someone who's experiencing PTSD from being triggered by things in their life? What can you say to help someone get over a broken heart? Your words don't change people's situations. 
It's not a matter of helping people to get better. It's helping them get through the moment. You help him or her get through a moment. This moment, now. Anybody can call with any kind of problem, with any background, you are not in control here. You better get used to it. People in crisis can be angry, they can be violent, they can be abusive. Uh, we get sociopaths, we get psychopaths call the hotline. Hannibal Lecter calls the hotline. You better be able to handle whatever comes your way on the lines. first time I had a call with someone who, if I met them in real life, I would be like, you know what, I think you're a bad person, it was very challenging. You know, at Samaritans, we believe that everyone is worthy of help, and so we would support the victim of a crime as well as the perpetrator. got to be able to check your ego at the door. This isn't about me. This isn't a time to educate someone on what I think is the right thing. It is not about me. It's about the person who's calling me. They are trusting us with their thoughts and their privacy, and they don't know what we're going to do with it. There's no eye-to-eye -eye communication, so it's all auditory. They listen for the sincerity. They're listening that we're honest, and they know. They know if somebody isn't. You don't want to go on autopilot because that will show that you are not listening. One of the more difficult calls that I have taken in the last 18 years was from a gentleman who was literally screaming at me that he was going to jump off one of the bridges. I don't know if it was real or not real, but our protocol is to say, Samaritans, can I help you? The second question we ask is, are you suicidal? Do I ask a man who just told me he's gonna jump off a bridge, are you suicidal? The answer, of course, is no, I'm not gonna ask him that question. He just told me the answer. If I even pose the question, that person's going to think I'm not listening to them. So you're telling me where to focus, hence the act of listening. I'm receiving signals from you, interpreting them, and making sure my focus comes back where it came from. So follow, don't lead. If you were to take music, for example, call and response, which comes from blues, which actually comes from African chants, it's the basis of good communication. Samaritans, can I help you?
You said uh, the situation with your mother had you feeling overwhelmed. Do I understand what you're saying, that you feel sad right now? I think I hear you saying you need to talk it out. You said you were worried about going to visit your family members. Well, I heard you say, did you say this? You're having a tough time. You grew up in poverty. You're, you're I'm here to listen. I'm listening. I'm listening. We're listening. Now, there are three things we know about the truly suicidal. They are hopeless. They believe no one cares if they live or die, and in the end, they think they're doing everybody a favor. Well, to stop somebody at the nobody cares, you want to stop them and say, I care. It's no secret that we answered the phone after two rings. And when we present it in training class, I'll go, now, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen the first time you answer the phone. It's going to ring once, and you're going to go, oh, God, I think I'm going to throw up. You're going to take a deep breath. The phone's going to ring again. Ready or not, you're going to go, Samaritan. Samaritan, can I help you? third time when I was alone on the phone that I was no longer in training there was a woman they called the hotline are you suicidal do you have a plan do you have the means she she wanted she wanted to do it Her emotions would de-escalate, and then all of a sudden they would go back up in anger and frustration. She had a sick mother in the house. When you have someone you're taking care of, as they get worse, you lose the connection to friends. I can't go out with friends. I can't go. So these are people who need to talk to someone. Don't hang up. Don't hang up. I kept feeling if, I, if she didn't hang up, I could get her help. I just had my head down, just blocking out the whole world, listening to this woman. You know, I was holding my head and just listening, listening, listening. I was just in that one little world there of, of this phone call, and that was it. it. You don't realize what it's doing to you physically. I mean, the tenseness. We don't volunteer to listen to someone commit suicide. We have an option of our own, whether we stay on the line with someone who's already begun the process. And we are helpless because we have no idea who they are, where they're calling from. 
38 minutes I listened. I'm going to ask you one more time. Can I call 911 back for you? Can I get you help? Finally, she agreed to me. She said yes. I, 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 I left the phones and, and I went out to my car and I just cried and just cried and cried and cried. This was probably maybe six or seven months after my nephew had committed suicide um, upstairs in his bedroom. I I remember getting the call from my brother-in-law to go over to the house. And um, I said, what's the matter? And he said, just come over. And he met me in the driveway. And I just was like, like no, it was not real. It wasn't, it, you know. I, I, I could not place myself in the reality of the situation. It was like it pulled your heart out on your way down to the floor. For some reason, he just couldn't go on. And that was, you know, um, that that's something we have to just accept. I mean, he knew that we loved him. He knew that we would do anything for him. That's the thing you think about. We mention him all the time, and, you know, we laugh about different things, and he was a wonderful person. That's what we remember him by. I had to find something positive in it. I needed to find, to do something positive. And my first reaction was to join the Samaritans. My nephew was in pain, and this woman was in pain, but if my nephew had called, would he have gone through the pain that night and felt better? If this woman did, we never know. We never, never know. And training. We're told, don't ever, we don't call hospitals to see how somebody is. There's absolutely no follow-up, and, she, and we've been told, don't read the papers. Because, you know, it may have gotten them through that night, but that doesn't mean their world has changed and it's not going to be another night. We can't prove that we prevent suicides. We only know we helped somebody that night. I've been doing this forever, and it doesn't mean in any given moment I don't have my own heart skip a beat or my own stomach uh, uh, fall out. I feel I should have invested in Pepto-Bismol many years ago because I certainly drink a fair amount of it. You do this enough times, you hear it wherever you go. You can hear people's stress, you can hear hopelessness, you can hear people reaching out, and you can hear people when they get pushed away. I guess the way that I listen is different in that I think I have just a greater awareness or I'm always trying to catch what is it that I'm not hearing. It's human contact. It's human contact. It's very simple human contact of listening. Suicide prevention is not about death and dying. 
It's about life and living and how we help each other. You can do it day to day out in the world. Just communicate with kindness. And certainly the world needs that now. Close your eyes. Empty your mind. How far can you hear? Your ears can actually walk down hallways, outside buildings. I can hear tugboats on the river, which are a half mile away. I can hear a faint sound of a train which is across the river. I can hear the trees outside blowing. I can hear someone play a piano. I hear an airplane. You can hear people's conversations. I hear this voice of like a woman. I hear traffic. I can hear wind rustling through the trees. I can hear people yelling. Children outside, trucks and cars. I hear my own heartbeat. I hear a woman talking to her I dog. I hear footsteps breathing. I hear you. The Samaritan Suicide Prevention Program is not intended in any way to be a one-stop solution to crisis management. It's always recommended to seek professional care. The hotline staff would also like to stress that if your situation is an emergency, please call 911. We'll have a link to more mental health services on our website, cbc.ca slash loveme. On today's episode, you heard... Marilyn Dorsey. I have been with the Samaritans since 2006. I am now on the board of directors. Denise Panichis, and I'm the executive director of the Samaritans of Rhode Island. It's now been 18 years. Casey Starr. I was a volunteer in the hotline for about two years, and now I am the assistant to the executive director. Alan Ross. I'm the executive director of Samaritan Suicide Prevention Center in New York City. Today's episode of Love Me was produced and edited by Lena Beck-Sillison, Crystal Duhame, and Mira Bertwentonic. It was mixed by Crystal Duhame. Big thanks to our additional voices, Leah Roy, Matt Murphy, Anissa Aoun, Brendan Francis Noonan, and Alexander Charles Adams. The singing you heard at the beginning of the show comes from a piece called Sosten and Inzagere, A Love Story, produced by Emily Bright for KFAI in Minneapolis. We'll have a link to Emily's full piece on our website. Subscribe to the show at cbc.ca slash loveme or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lou Olkowski. 
Thanks for listening. In the mood for more CBC Podcasts? Check out The Secret Life of Canada, an unconventional history podcast that mixes Canada's past and pop culture. It's weird, it's quirky, and it peeks into the corners of Canada's hidden history. The indie hit comes back for its second season on CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.